This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. There's something that we have to um, we have to remind ourselves of as we approach Scripture, and that is that our hearts need to be prepared to listen to what God's address is to us. When we've heard texts like this, and many of us, this is a common place of teaching. Even if we haven't been in church much, we've heard these stories. Uh, maybe we heard them when we were in Sunday school, or maybe we've heard them in different church services we've gone to. And, and the danger of hearing something over and over again is the fact that you begin to believe that you've extracted everything. You've got everything you need to know from the text, and you treat it like a textbook. Like, I know everything, so thus I don't need to learn anything else from this. But this is not just a textbook that we're trying to extract information from. And Jamie said this very perfectly. This is, we're coming to hear God's voice. And if he wants to repeat, you're going to hear these messages being spoken throughout his word over and over again. And there's a reason why. It's not because we don't know it or we haven't heard it. It is that we continually struggle to believe these things to be true. And so as we come to this, my prayer is that we take these things that we've heard maybe over and over again and we have this heart to say, Lord, speak to us through these words. Because if I'm honest, I, I desperately want these things to be true, but often, often I, I believe other things and I have to repent of believing those things and I need to set my eyes and my heart upon the things that are true. And so I'm praying today that even if we've heard these things, they'll be refreshed in our hearts again. All religions, all stories, all worldviews have similar claims. They all claim similar things. And and because they claim similar things, when we hear them, um, what we do is we say, well, Christianity is just one religion amongst all others. It's just one story and one worldview amongst all others. And we have a hard time distinguishing why is Christianity uh, different than any other religion or any other worldview. And the reality is, yes, there is similar claims when it comes to all stories, worldviews, and religions. But what Jesus does and what Jesus even continues to emphasize throughout his time here on earth is that what he has come to do is so radically different than all other stories and worldviews that it should cause us to take notice. It should destroy all other thoughts and systems in which we have. We have to understand that what Jesus is trying to show us is so radically different. Here are some of the claims that all, uh, all religions, all stories, all worldviews make, even Christianity. But the difference is not that their claims are different. It's what is being said in those. One of those claims is that all religions, all stories, all worldviews claim to be true. They all claim to be authoritative. And what I mean by authoritative is that they call us to submit, 
to that truth and to say that this is the authority for my whole life and that I should live under this. This is true and it should, could, it should be something that I submit to. They also claim to be communal. And what I mean by communal is that they call a people to come and live under it and around it and embody it and live it out. It calls a community. And they all claim to be religious. And here's what I mean by religious, not in the sense of, a, of, of a, the, the negative connotation, which we'll see in a little bit, but the re, they all claim to be religious in that they call us to ultimate commitment. They call us to commit our lives to this truth. So they claim to be true, and we've seen this from Jesus. He claims to be true, the true king. He claims to have a kingdom, and that kingdom has authority. We've seen this even in Mark from the very beginning. And today we're going to look at the last two claims, the claim to be communal, and we've seen parts of this as we've gone through the text, but also the claim to be religious. What kind of religion is this? Now, as we're seeing this walk through the book of Mark, these claims that are coming through the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, what we have to see in this first slide is this. We're going to learn this in the first section of Mark, Mark 12, 13 through 17, in the story where he calls Levi. We see this. Jesus is establishing a new kind of community built on his righteousness. Jesus is establishing a new kind of community built on his righteousness. Now, in order to illustrate this story what we're, or this claim, I, I want us to look at the, the text, uh, verses 13 through 17, but I'm going to try and just kind of paraphrase it. From all the study and the reading of commentaries, there's some interesting things that we might just skip over. First is this, the picture starts out or the story starts out with Jesus going out by the sea. And I love when it says he went out again beside the sea. And what that means is he would, con he would continually go by the sea. And it doesn't give much information why, but if our minds could wander, or even some commentators say, you could see that maybe Jesus would go there to be reminded of who he was and what he had come to do. There was something about being on the beach and looking out onto the sea that something took place. And, and I, I know that many of you have those places. And I know that sometimes when I go out into the mountains, you see a lot of all over my Facebook pictures of mountains and sunsets and all those kinds of things. I'm driving, I'm going on with normal life, and all of a sudden some sunset, these Arizona skies are beautiful, and I see the mountain, and all of a sudden, no matter what I'm doing, I'm reminded that there is a God who is majestic and beautiful. Just picture that as Jesus goes by the sea. He's going there again. And then it gives this next phrase that crowds come to him and he begins to teach them. Now, this is a, a present kind of action. So what it's actually saying is crowds came again and he taught again. It's giving this idea that crowds are continually just pursuing him and wanting to hear from him and wanting to see him do miracles. And so you see him going out to the sea to kind of have a moment. And here comes the crowds. What does he do with patience? 
with the consistency of the calling that he has been, he begins and continues to teach them. Now, it doesn't say what he taught them, but what I'm going to do is just is kind of uh, uh, let my imagination wander a little bit, and even with, with the help of some commentators, to kind of think that maybe he was teaching the lesson in which he was about to illustrate in when he calls Levi. You can imagine this. Let, let's just go there with this. It doesn't say exactly what he taught. But let's say he's standing by the sea and he's teaching this crowd and he's telling them the type of community that he has come to rescue. That he's come to get the most broken, the weak, the meek. He's come to take those who are sinners. He's come to rescue and redeem. He's, come to, he's talking about the kind of people that he's come to rescue. And just because people are hearing this beautiful message of the kind of community that God has come to redeem, the outcast, the broken. Just because people have heard this teaching doesn't mean when it actually starts to take place, they're going to like it. So as he's teaching them, he finishes and he looks up at a tax collector, Levi, why I say up is because he was sitting basically on a pedestal, maybe listening to the teaching, but his job was to sit there, and as boats came in, he was to collect taxes from them. Now, a tax collector was an outcast, especially this man who was a Jewish tax collector because he had basically sold out to the man. This guy was, 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 was taking and, and receiving taxes. They were known as crooked. They were known as sinners. Whatever it was, they were, they were, even though if they were just doing their job, they were not looked upon as the ones welcomed into society. They were the outcasts. So let's say Jesus is teaching on the shore and finishes this beautiful teaching and then looks up to Levi and says, follow me. Out of the whole crowd that's there, he picks the sinful, the outcast, the one that the crowd wants nothing to do with. And he says, we're going to your house. And I love the next scene. They go to the house, and into this house, it shows Jesus chilling, just chilling. It says relaxing with sinners. All the sinners come in, and they're chilling. They're relaxing. They're hanging. They are doing everything. It is not this uptight, formal kind of thing. Jesus is chilling with them and he is hanging out with these people that society wants nothing to do with and the way that he is comfortable with them makes everybody else uncomfortable he is so comfortable with those people it kind of gives off the vibe if you will that Jesus is going these are my people these are my people the outcast, the sinner, the broken, the sick. And all of those who were sitting out in the crowd listening to this beautiful message are really uncomfortable. And, and I love this. They're afraid to come into the house because, you know, bad company corrupts good habits. They can't go into the house because if they're caught hanging with those kind of people, then their people will think they're those people. So they start talking to the disciples. Notice they still haven't got enough guts to go to Jesus yet. Last time they're thinking it in their hearts, this time they go to the disciples. They say to the disciples, why is it, you know, that they're hanging out and Jesus overhears them talking to the disciples and he answers them. And this is what he says in verse 17. He says, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus has just finished and he's now having a meal with sinners. And what's happening is he's signaling that the kingdom of God is for sinners. The type of community that the kingdom of God draws in is for sinners. Now they would have heard this in his teachings and they would have seen this in all the things that he was doing. But every time he did this, it made them uncomfortable. Now... Here's what, I, here's what I want us to do. Just because we hear teachings, a lot of times we can mix teachings with sayings that we hear in our culture. I, I see this happen all the time. People will come to me and say, Pastor, where is this in the Bible? And I have to inform them, it's not in the Bible. Because they literally hear it so often and they believe it to be true because it's something that they believe happens in life. They, they, they've put this, inserted it in Scripture. Let me give you some examples. There's people who say, Pastor, where is the verse that says moderation in all things? I've heard this saying all the time, where is that verse? And they go, oh, didn't Paul talk about this? And there's some hints of Pauline theology that you might be able to lay over it. But where you have to understand is that saying is Aristotle doctrine that many of us have kind of laid over Pauline theology. Here's another one. Pastor, where is it in the Bible where it says, to thy own self be true? You laugh, but it might have been you asking me. You know, I can't believe they did that. That was me. You're feeling conviction. <laughs> to thy own self be true. It's not in the Bible. Shakespeare wrote it in the play Hamlet, okay? And you're like, well, isn't it true that the Bible wants you to be true to yourself? We need to preach on that later. How about this one? Pastor, where is it where it says money is the root of all evil? Now, there is a place in scripture that says the love of money is the root of all evil. But that's drastically different than money being the root of all evil. How about this one, Pastor? Where is cleanliness is next to godliness? I think I know. I think it's in Proverbs, right? And I have to inform them, thankfully, that that is not true. Because if it was, I would not be godly, okay? Okay. Now, there is a guy who used to say that, John Wesley. John Wesley used to say that a lot. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And many people, because John Wesley was a famous preacher, they kind of brought that in and thought that it was a part of Scripture. Cleanliness is next to godliness, but it also condemns all of us in this room. <laughs> How about this one, Pastor? Where is this too shall come to pass? Uh, it's not in the Bible. How about the eye is the window to the soul? It's not in the Bible. And this is the one that I think many of us would struggle with, and even in some ways, and I've heard this one more often than others, but this is the same. And the reason why this is really, really dangerous is not because it's, it, it's a saying that many of us uh, use. The reason why it's really dangerous is because it's really opposed to the gospel. And that is this. God helps those who help themselves. Now, here's the interesting thing. Nobody knows exactly the roots 
of this saying, God helps those who help themselves. But most people know that it was famous or made famous by Benjamin Franklin. And some of us are going, well, Benjamin Franklin, he was a godly man, so it's got to be true. Also, God helps those who help themselves. Benjamin Franklin said that. So maybe it's not in the Bible, but a good man say it. Well, what we don't know is that Benjamin Franklin was a deist. A deist is someone who believes there is a God, but that that God is not actively involved in our lives. And so a deist saying God helps those who help themselves makes sense because in his point of view, we had to help ourselves and that man needed to be the ones who, who, who picked themselves up by the bootstraps and, and, and helped themselves. Because why? Because God was not actively involved. Now, even though the Bible teaches something different, I've seen so many Christians who not only say but believe that God helps those who help themselves. Now, the problem with that is what Jesus taught, what Jesus illustrated in his life, and what Jesus did by rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. They could not believe that Jesus would hang out with the sinners and the sick and those who were uh, the most outcast of society. And here's what we see in what Jesus is saying. God is, it's, it's not true that God helps those who help themselves. What he's telling us is this, that the righteousness, and I want this slide to go up, the righteousness of God escapes those who try to establish their own. That's opposite of God helps those who help themselves. This says this, if you try and establish your own right standing and make yourself right, you're actually resisting and escaping the grace of God. What Jesus is saying here is I've come for the sick and the sinner. I've come for those who find themselves in that category not in the one who try to establish their own righteousness. We'll talk about why that's so dangerous, but let's move to the next story. The next story goes into Jesus once again doing things that he's taught, and everybody's heard these teachings, but every time he does things that he teaches about, it rocks the system. I think it's funny because uh, many of us, even though we hear about Christian teachings, when it actually starts affecting the way we live our lives, it, it makes us uncomfortable, if we're honest. So what do we see? Well, verse 18 shows us that there's this group of Pharisees who are a group of nationalists. There's John the Baptist's disciples. They're the purists. And they came to Jesus this time, and what they said is, listen, look, Fasting is a religious thing, and this was supposed to be on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and fasting was this good thing. Many of the Pharisees and scribes would fast twice a week, and so what they're doing is, listen, hey man, we're all fasting. We like what you're doing. You're going around healing people. Your disciples are following you. We may not agree on some things, but listen, man, just submit to the system and let's fast together. Let's show people that fasting is this really good thing. Why don't your disciples fast? And in verse 19, what Jesus does is makes a huge claim. They are struggling with the fact that he is not fasting, and Jesus takes them back to a party, the bridegroom. 
He shows them that what a party is like is when there is a bridegroom who's coming to his bride. When he comes, the wedding would last for three to seven days. And the guests were not required to do anything except eat, drink, sing, and dance. What he's saying is, as long as the bridegroom is with the bride, there's one requirement. Eat, drink, sing, and dance. Not fast. Fasting goes against everything that fasting was even created to do is what he's showing them. What fasting was made for is that people of God, when they were feeling far from him, would lay aside every hindrance and they would want to draw near to God. Fasting was a a means to draw near to God when there was a separation or something that was far. What he's saying is, I am God, I am the bridegroom, and I have come near to you. And Jesus is saying that this bridegroom has come to forgive, has come to renew his vows with this adultery adulterous spouse he's come into this world to pursue us and he is drawn near to us and if God is near through Christ he's saying why would you fast it's party time if the whole point of fasting was to draw near to God by them fasting was an admittance that they didn't believe Jesus was God and that he had come near you see The religion of this day was a system. A system that was trying to accomplish something and that what it was trying to accomplish was godliness. And I want you to look at this next side so you can see that they were both trying to accomplish something but their beliefs and how it happened were radically different. Religious says this, right living by us will produce godliness. So if we fast, if we pray, we obey the Torah, if we do these types of things, this will produce godliness in our life. But the gospel, that message in which Jesus has come to declare, says this, that God living in us will produce godliness. One says, live right and you will be godly. The other says, only by God being in you only by his presence being near you only by him coming into your heart only by him transforming the very core of who you are only by his spirit his dwelling his presence only by a covenant between a bridegroom and his bride only by the two becoming one flesh only by this new covenant can we be made and to be produce God Godliness, only by God living in us can we produce godliness. This is that new religion. You see, the type of community that Jesus was drawing to himself was not the community that religion draw. The religion drew those who were privileged, those who had everything together. Religion drew these whitewashed tombs, the type of people that could fake it on the outside, but on the inside they were dead. But Jesus says, no, the type of people that I relax with, chill with, the type of people that I bring my presence to, the type of people that I draw around my table are the sinners, the sick. And the type of religion that I have established is not based upon your works, 
but is based upon a covenant with me. Here's what he shows when he shows these two illustrations. He talks about a patch being put on clothes and what happens with when a new patch is put on old clothes, it ends up tearing away and destroying the patch and making a bigger tear in the clothes. And then it talks about wineskins. He's using this to illustrate if you put new wine in old wineskins, this new wine will bust open, destroy the wineskins and destroy the wine. What Jesus is showing us in this is that the gospel and religion in the, in the negative sense are not just something that can cozy up to each other and complement each other. They are diametrically opposed to each other. They are opposite to each other. So Jesus is the new patch. He is the new wine. And here's what he's saying. He is saying, I am not an add-on or an appendage or an addition to your old belief system. Jesus is not come to be integrated into your pre-existing system. He has not come to enter into already a system you have called to set up or, or, or a kingdom that you've established. He's not come in to serve and worship and be a part of your system. He has this whole new way of thinking and living. Let me give you examples of how we do this today. Let me give you examples of how the gospel, quote unquote, is preached or believed by us in our culture that makes Jesus an appendage, an add-on, a patch, trying to fit into old wineskins. One example of that is what I'll call second chance theology. This is the idea, and many people talk about this, when they see somebody who's broken and see somebody who's sick and see somebody who's fallen off the wagon, what they do is say, good news, friends, Jesus has come to give you a second chance. He's come to give you a second chance, and if you could just... Ask Him to forgive you. You can get up and dust off your, yourself and pull yourself up off your bootstraps and you now can live in this second chance. That's a patch. My friends, second chance is not what we need. Matter of fact, it's not good news. It's horrible news. Why? Because I've already used my second chance. And if anybody else in this room has used their second chance, can I get a good amen? amen? So it's not for nobody in this room is a second chance a good idea. And you say, Pastor, what you're doing is twisting their words. They're saying he's giving you a perpetual second chance. He's always giving you another second chance. One, that's confusing and doesn't make sense because you couldn't call it a second chance after you already used the second chance. That would be a third chance fourth fifth and it's it's a he gives you eternity chances i don't know whatever you call it you can't call it a second chance okay you're confusing us simpletons okay <laughs> but let's say let's follow that logic and let's say he does just keep giving you more and more and more and more chances that's still horrible news because all you're hearing is this 
You can do it. Try harder. Get up and try another chance. That all you need is God to forgive you and give you a second chance. But the gospel is not a message of a second chance. He's not giving you another chance. He's giving you a whole new life. This gospel message is not about you trying harder. It's about us seeing that God through Christ has come near to us. And he has died the death we should have died. And he rose from the grave and he has this new life. And this new life is what he's offering us. That's a patch. And that patch will tear and not only will it destroy the patch, but it will make a bigger rip. Here's another one that I hear often. Is people think Jesus is an enhancement drug to the life they're already living. They're like, man, I heard about this guy. I heard about this Jesus and his only aim in life is to like be a steroid in my life. He wants to come and make me stronger. He wants to come and make me richer. He wants to come and give me more blessings. What he wants to do is just come and enhance the life I already have. Not like I'm broken and I'm a sinner. I just need a patch. I just need a shot. I just need better of what I have that's not good news at all friends it has no admittance of you being in the category of completely sick and broken and sinful it has you going I'm on the right track all I need is some enhancements the other thing is that people think that all he's come to do is fix us all he's come to do is the areas that are broken. There's certain areas that are broken. I get that, Pastor. All he's come to do is just kind of put patches on the broken areas. It's not good news at all. If you're sick, if you're the sinner, if you're the one being called in this community, the only way you can relax and be with Jesus is because you know that he has everything you need. He is the whole life. He is everything that you need. And someone who is sick, it's not good news to just tell them, just put this Band-Aid on. Just cover this little scratch right here. Just clean up the outside. Listen, when I hear these messages, something happens in me. I'm reminded of how easily I became and believed in my own righteousness. That I really thought that what God wanted from me was to do all the right things and say all the right things and be around the right people and be in the right place. And if I did those things, God would show me his favor. But you want to know what that led me to, friends? That led me to hopelessness it was a completely broken system and the many times I would ask God to come and kind of patch it up and just help me out but until I saw the realities of the good news and the good news being this he has come to the sinner to the sick you want to hear the best news I am not in the 
healed, broken, I'm not in the healed and and perfect and, and I have my own righteous category in. This was the best news I ever received. I'm a sinner. I'm sick. I cannot heal myself. I cannot save myself. I cannot. And when I realized I had no ability to pick myself up by the bootstrap, to get myself back into it, when I realized that, I realized, well, what is this new religion? What is this new covenant? If it's not by my ability to fix myself, if it's not by my ability to change my heart, what is this gospel message? This gospel message is this. The bridegroom has come. The bridegroom has come. And he's establishing a new covenant with me. He's bringing me in. This adulterous wife, this sick and broken individual, he has loved me, forgiven me, and given me new life by establishing a covenant with me. I'm free. What am I free to do? I'm free to love him. To love him. To love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. As easy as this sounds to many of us, because maybe we've heard it over and over again, my concern as a pastor, because I know my own heart, is how hard this is to actually believe and trust and live in. Let me give you the best example that I can. And the reason I'm using this example of marriage is because Jesus does. Jesus uses this example of marriage in saying that this bridegroom has come to his bride and he is drawn near to her. And this is the kind of transformation. Fasting can't do this. It comes by the bridegroom coming near to the bride. The covenant is what makes this happen. And so what I want us to see is this. The perception we have about our marriages or about our relationship often is a window or a picture. It's a, it's a way of us seeing where our hearts actually are. I have many people who will come to me, and I'll use a husband as an example, but this could easily be a wife. Husband and wife in a mess of a relationship. And immediately at that moment, not a minute before, when everything is falling apart, they want to meet right then. So there's a call, and we meet. We set up a time. We sit down and meet. And the first question out of their mouth after a lengthy time of accusation is this. Pastor, tell us what we need to do to fix this relationship. It's broken. Everything's falling apart. Tell us what we need to do to fix this relationship. And it's at that moment that I pray that God would show them the reality of their heart in that question. Because what they're wanting me to do at that moment, what you're wanting me to do at that moment is this. Give me something I can do. Give me a principle. Give me a new law. Give me something that I can do so that I can prove I'm a good husband. 
Let me show her how good of a husband I am. I will do all the things I should do. So, pastor, just give me a list. If I could just see a list, I would do it. Now, that and I know in and of itself is a lie. You wouldn't do it. But not only is it a lie, it is a complete detour from the depths of what's really wrong in the marriage. The problem is not that you are a good husband and that she's a good wife because you constantly tell each other you are. I'm a good wife. I'm a good husband. You just don't see it. Look at all the things I've done and look at how many things you've done to show me you're not. The problem is not you needing to feel like you're a good husband. The problem is your pursuit of being a good husband or a good wife. is walking away from what you've really been called to do. You haven't been called to be a good husband. You've been called by God to love your wife as Christ loves the church. To love her. A good husband wants to know what are all the things that I can do to show that I'm a good husband. But a godly husband pursues to love his wife they really are more concerned with doing the right thing than loving her. and here's the example that I could give I will just outright say I love my wife but I am in no delusion to tell all of you I am a good husband I have failed her more times than could be admitted from this pulpit. I have constantly let her down over and over and over again. I'm not just talking about a second chance here. I'm saying I have continually proven to her I am not a good husband. And if she made me live up to that religious kind of mindset that all I want you to do is show me what a good husband is, I would constantly fail. But thanks be to God that her definition of a good husband is loving her like Christ. I will tell you this. I love her. I love her, and because I love her, I want to know her, and because I love her, I want to see the areas in which I can serve her, and because I love her, in those ways when I fail, I want to repent and come back, I want to work things through, I want to walk through good times and bad, because I love her, I am committed to her, because I love her, I'm going to stay in the fight, because I love her, I'm going to walk through all the pain and all the difficulty, because I love love her like Christ loves the church I'm going to try to figure out the areas of my life that I'm falling short and ask God for the grace to continue to grow because I love her even in the midst of the mess I'm going to tell you this many of us are trying to figure out what God wants us to do to get away from the fact that he wants you to love him and commit to him if he could just tell me what to do, I wouldn't have to love him. If he could just tell me what to do, I wouldn't have to submit to him and commit to him. If he could just tell me the things that I could do to fix my life, if he could just tell me the things that I could do so I could find his favor and blessing, all to get away from this. I love you. I 
commit my life to you. I submit to you. And here's what happens. Here's the beauty of the gospel. When we commit in a covenantal relationship, when we have a God who's committed to us and who has drawn us into covenant with him, what ends up happening is lovers outwork laborers every time. Every time. Lovers outwork laborers every time because they're not just trying to live up to a checklist to try to please everybody and show that they're a good husband. What they really want to do is authentically love and serve and follow and humble themselves and they're not afraid to admit, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm chilling with Jesus and all of my people who are sinful and broken. But we're saved by Christ. He's come near to me. And he's drawn me near to him. And I love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've committed my life to following him like Levi. Following him like the disciples. Following him like a wife. Like the bride. What the beauty of this new religion is this. It's not built on the pursuit of being a good wife and husband. It's built on love. It's built on his presence. It's built on his goodness. It's built on a sure and solid foundation. This gospel message is powerful, radical, and new. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, I desperately want to believe and there are often times that I find myself again believing I've sinned. I'm sorry, God, give me another chance. I'll read more of my Bible. I'll, I'll pray harder. I'll fast. And all those things have place. But they're not our righteousness. You are our righteousness. Father, I, I do pray that today as we hear your word, that our hearts would be confronted once again with this reality. As we constantly want to stand before you and not admit that we are sinners in need of your grace and you drawing near to us and your mercy, we want to say, God, look at what I have done. But today, Father, as we humble ourselves, It's going to take a real move of your spirit for many of us in this room to get out of the category of the self-righteous and by your spirit humble ourselves and admit, I am a sick, sinful sinner separated from you. But then to rejoice in the fact that the gospel is this good news to me as a sinner. This good news that you have come near to me.
that you have drawn us as your people into a relationship with you and that through this bridegroom coming to its bride and through this this great rejoicing of the work that you have done, I joyfully lay down all of my systems and all the ways that I have tried to please you and tried to, to do all these things to try to manipulate you and I joyfully surrender my life to you as my King, my Lord, my Savior, the lover of my soul. What we're saying today is I don't want to just be good on the outside. God, we want you to come and give us new life. Change our hearts, God. Work deep inside of us. Let us not just try to patch you in or just try to pour you into the old. God, make us all new. We don't need a second chance. We, we need new life. We don't just need a patch. We need you to come and completely let us be die, die with you and be raised with you into new life. God, we need the gospel to be so true. And today, once again, we affirm this fact. We, we're thankful for that. Church, today, here's what we're doing as we come to the tables. We're remembering that the only thing that fills us, the only thing that quenches the thirst, the only thing that feeds the hunger is Jesus' body and blood. That's why we come to the table. We come hungry and we come thirsty and we come knowing that the only thing that can fill that is Jesus. And when we take this, this is what we're doing. This is what the Bible says. We're renewing our covenant. We are remembering, rehearsing, renewing the covenant we have. That we're rejoicing in the fact that it is because of this new covenant by his blood and body that we get to be in a relationship with him. For the self-righteous, for the sinner, for the rebellious, for those who are far from him, this message is a call to us to come to drink of his blood, to eat of his body. For some of us today, we're also going to have those over there who are ready to pray for you. As the band plays, we're ready to pray. If there's areas of your life that maybe you haven't repented of or, or ways in which you've tried to be self-righteous and build up your own facade of righteousness, but you're, you're dying on the inside, let us pray with you, brothers and sisters. So what we're going to do now is respond to this gospel message. Whether you've heard it over and over again, I pray that it will be beautiful to you. Whether this is the first time you've heard it, I pray that it will be water to a dry and, and weary soul. And that you would hear the good news and respond to its goodness. The tables are open. People will be ready for you to pray. The big thing is, church, let's respond to this good and glorious news. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.